This is World Lutheran News Digest, an audio news magazine bringing you a look at significant events in worldwide Lutheranism. WLN Digest is produced through the facilities of Worldwide KFUO, a broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Today on World Lutheran News Digest... I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. One of the most revered sites for Eastern Orthodox Christians is the Hagia Sophia, built in the 4th century that served as a place of Christian worship until the Ottoman Turks conquered Constantinople in the year 1453. It became a museum following the First World War when Turkey became a secular state, but Turkey's president decided it should once again become a mosque, effective July the 24th. What does this mean for Christians worldwide? Islamic history expert Dr. Timothy Furnish and I discuss this issue on today's World Lutheran News Digest. And now today's Fast Track. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops said yesterday that July 24th is a day of mourning for Hagia Sophia. The former church and museum in Istanbul will that day be inaugurated as a mosque. In a July 21 tweet, the conference said that it joins with the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese of America in offering our prayers for the restoration of Hagia Sophia as a place of prayer and reflection for all peoples. Turkish President Erdogan signed a decree July the 10th converting Hagia Sophia into a mosque. The decree followed closely on a ruling by the Council of State, Turkey's highest administrative court, which declared unlawful an 80-year-old government decree which converted the building from a mosque into a museum. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit Court issued a resounding victory yesterday for New Hope Family Services, a faith-based adoption provider. The court reversed a district court's dismissal of New Hope's lawsuit against New York officials seeking to shut down the provider simply for its religious beliefs about marriage. In November, at the request of Alliance Defending Freedom Attorneys representing New Hope, the Second Circuit Court temporarily halted state officials from interrupting the current adoption placements or mandating the closure of New Hope's adoption program until the court has had a chance to consider whether to reverse the federal district court's decision. The case now goes back to the district court for further proceedings. The New York State Office of Children and Family Services singled out the religious nonprofit for its policy, prioritizing the placement of children it serves in homes with a married mother and father. In its decision in favor of New Hope, the Second Circuit concluded that the district court should not have dismissed the lawsuit because the adoption provider's arguments demonstrate that the government's regulation may not have been neutral and may instead have been informed by hostility towards certain religious beliefs. World Lutheran News Digest will be back right after these messages. Hi, I'm Pastor Ted Lesh, pastor at Chapel of the Cross Lutheran Church in North St. Louis County, inviting you to listen to our KFUO radio worship broadcasts on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. Active worship, preaching, music, and singing are part of every one of our services at Chapel. Join us Sunday nights at 6. It's one more broadcast worship opportunity for you from your friends at Chapel of the Cross and KFUO Radio. This is World Lutheran News Digest. I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. One of the treasures of the Christian world was the Hagia Sophia, which was the main cathedral of the Eastern Orthodox religion. It fell to the Muslims in 
fifteen twenty in fifteen pardon me in fourteen fifty three when Constantinople was overrun by Mehmet the Second. It was turned into a museum under the reign of the uh, Kemal Ataturk when after World War One, but now just recently the head of Turkey has decided to make it once again a mosque despite the opposition from many people, especially in the Christian world. What are the implications for this? Well, let's ask Dr. Timothy Furnish, who is an expert in Islamic history. Dr. Furnish, welcome to the program. Glad to be here, Kip. Thank you. How significant is this? Is it just something we should ignore, or is this a precursor of something? I think it's pretty significant. Um, I, uh, By the way, I've been there twice. It's, it's, it's just a lovely place to go. I mean, I love Istanbul in general, but Hagia Sophia in particular. Um, I, I think it's pretty significant <clears throat> because it marks in, in, in many ways sort of the, uh, not quite the final nail, but it certainly marks a large departure from uh, the secularism of a Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, whom you mentioned, of course, uh, who not quite single-handedly, but close to that, created the Republic of Turkey out of the ashes of the Ottoman Empire. And Turkey has been ostensibly, at least, a secular republic, you know, modeled sort of on the United States in a way, since since the uh, really the mid 1920s. Uh, but but uh, with uh, President Erdogan, who came to power, you know, a decade or so ago, uh, in his AK party, which is which is, it, it's really not accurate to call it a fundamentalist Islamic party. Uh, I have some friends, even some analyst friends, that will do that, Kip. Uh, but it's certainly a party that thinks that Turkey went too far, that the pendulum has swung too far into secularism, away from its uh, Islamic nature uh, of Turkish society. Anyway, so basically, again, what I think this marks is really that at least for 50% or, you know, 50.1% of the population that Erdogan and the AK party, uh, Akba Kalkinma, which roughly translates as Justice and Development Party, uh, uh, for them, it marks really the rejection of secular Turkey. And so that's very problematic on a number of levels. Uh, uh, and we can get into that if you'd like. Well, yeah, this is something we need to examine, uh, especially, you know, it almost seems like uh, like uh, Turkey is trying to recreate the Ottoman Empire again. You know, they've sent troops into uh, Libya. They sent troops into uh, Syria and into Iraq. They're doing something. Well, yeah, that's this phenomenon that, that, that people started calling some years ago, well, especially after he came into power, um, Neo-Ottomanism. And in fact, there was a famous cover of the, uh, the, the Economist magazine, the British uh, Journal of, of, of International Affairs, that had, had a picture of, on the cover a few years ago of one of the Ottoman sultans, and they had photoshopped Erdogan's face into it. I think that can be overstated because there are profound differences between the state of modern Turkey and the Ottoman state. Like, for instance, I, I don't think the, I don't think the Turks really have any desire to, you know, to send troops back into Libya like they had in the 1700s or, or, or something. But what I think is that that Turkey has gotten to the point where it's willing to sort of throw its weight around. And if really, when it boils down to, if you look at the most powerful Islamic countries in the Middle East and really arguably in the world, you really sort of only have three, well, 
the Egyptians might argue, but I, I have a hard time putting the Egyptians in there because their economy is not very powerful. But it really is Turkey, Iran, and really sort of in second tier, which punches above its weight, I would argue, Saudi Arabia. Of course, Turkey and Saudi Arabia are, are Sunni, but they have big differences in how they approach their religion, and they don't like each other much. In fact, I, I, I'm actually finishing a new book, hopefully I'll have it out next month, on how the Ottoman Empire fought counterinsurgency. And one of the things that I've run across is um, th there's a very there's a big degree of bad blood between Turkey and Saudi Arabia to this day, particularly from the Saudi point of view, because if you go back to the 1800s and the early 1900s, and you probably know this, Kip, a lot of people probably don't, uh, the Ottomans were fighting the Wahhabi movement out of Saudi Arabia, which of course is the Islamic fundamentalist brand of this. It's the fundamentalist brand of Islam that the Saudis practice, and they they would they would fight the Saudis and sometimes bring. Um, at one point, the founder of the first Saudi state back in the early 19th century was captured, brought back to Istanbul, and beheaded. Um, so there is no love lost between Turkey and Saudi Arabia in that regard. Uh, but but Turkey Turkey has a much larger population, about 80 million. Uh, which is about equivalent with Iran, of course, Iran Shia. And you see a lot of stuff in the news these days about Iran and Turkey um, sort of, you know, getting along with each other and presenting a united front. And I, I, I tend to think that that's just sort of papering over differences because if you look back at history <laughs> over the last 500 years, the Turks and the Iranians were more, more often at each other's throats than they were cooperating with each other. So, of course, the big flying ointment here in terms of Erdogan becoming, sort of rejecting Turkish uh, republicanism in a sense and Turkish Turkish secularism, is that Turkey's in NATO. <laughs> Turkey uh, is, by the way, most people don't know this, the second largest military in NATO is Turkey. The United States is first. Turkey has a larger military than Germany or Britain or France even. And, you know, we saw some of this back a few months ago when... Um, well, actually, last year, I guess, and in the early part of this year, when there was the whole issue about whether, to what degree to help the Kurds fight what was left of the Islamic State. Uh, and, uh, of course, Erdogan, Erdogan's been accused by people of helping Islamic State. Uh, of course, why is that? If that's true, I'm not sure I believe that. But if that's true, it's because the Turks have a lot of problems with the Kurds. Uh, the Kurds are basically seen as separatists by the Turks with, you know, with, 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 not irrationally so, one might argue. Well, the, Kur the Kurds are really separate ethnically, are, are they not? They're, they're Good point. The Kurds are a separate ethnic group. They speak a different religion. Uh, they're re excuse me, they speak a different religion. Oh, I need more coffee here. Hang on, I got my coffee. <laughs> right here. The Kurds are mostly Sunnis, but they do speak a separate language than the Turks. Actually, Kurdish is closer to Persian. But the Kurds are considered a different, totally different ethno-linguistic group. They're not Turkish. They're not Persian. They're not Arab. Uh, they're Kurdish. So, and, and, and the largest stateless group in the, in the world, unless you count that sort of rump state that they have in northern Iraq, which does not have full uh, independence, but, you know, sort of a federated part of Iraq. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, the, what, what, and also what he's doing, Erdogan, that is, besides rejecting you know, his 80 years or so of, of uh, Turkish uh, secularism, is he is, in a sense, sort of bidding, and this is where I think, although, I, as I said earlier, I think this whole idea of neo-Ottomanism is overstated, I do think there is some ideological 
aspect to it that, that's very similar to what the Ottoman did, which was in that the, the Ottoman Sultan, who also claimed to be the Caliph, the, the, you know, the, the, the successor to Muhammad, very much removed, but still the successor to Muhammad, they claimed to be the leaders of the world's Sunni Muslims. And, um, you know, other places, you know, a lot of people in the Ottoman Empire bought into this. And some people in other places even bought into it. It was a very popular idea among Indian Muslims, for instance, that the Ottoman Sultan was, was, was their sort of de facto leader. So I think what, what, what this declaration of, of turning Hagia Sophia from a museum back into a mosque indicates, again, besides sort of the rejection of, of, of secularism in a sense, is that Erdogan basically thinks and a lot of his other statements kind of back this up, Erdogan certainly sort of buys into this clash of civilizations thesis. And he sees that, not, not in the same way that, you know, the, the, the leaders of ISIS or maybe the Iranians do, but in a certain sense, he buys into this idea that the Islamic world is sort of being bullied uh, by, by, by the rest of the world, particularly the West, and that something needs to be done about that, and there needs to be a leader that will stand up for Islam. And the Turks, certainly in a geopolitical sense, can make a good bid to be, you know, to be that state, and the leader of that state can make a good argument that it should be him. Well, the Turks themselves are, are a very nationalistic people, from what I understand. Uh, they look back with pride, for example, in the First World War, where they, they held out the Anzac invasion at uh, Gallipoli, uh, successfully fought uh, the Brits in, uh, in what, was, what was then Iraq. And, of course, they, uh, they had uh, incursions into Russia. Uh, I understand also that the military is held in very high esteem in that country, and also that their military is actually pretty effective. Yeah, it is. Um, well, uh, of those you said, though, I would say that if you really look at it militarily, the only real success of those three that you mentioned was was the uh, was Gallipoli. They did manage to defeat the Gallipoli invasion. Um, they did not really actually do very well against the Brits in Iraq. Um, they sort of fold, folded like an accordion um, against the Russians, eh, maybe, but not. But anyway, by the way, the one of the commanders at Gallipoli was 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 Ataturk. He was one of the few competent. Competent generals that they had, so uh, yeah, so that's an interesting point. Um, so yeah, it's very nationalist, and that nationalism is interesting because you you see it really it really surfaces in the 19th century because it, it, it and then the early 20th century something called the Young Turk Revolution where there was a movement there was a movement to say we by the Turks because remember the, the Ottoman Empire was really it was run by Turks and the majority of people in it were Turks. But there were a lot of Arabs, and then remember, at its height, they had much of Eastern Europe. They had Bulgarians and Bosnians and Albanians, and, and then they also, for a long time, ruled Egypt. Uh, they, they, they ruled Arabia all the way down to Yemen at certain times. So there were a lot of people in the empire that were not ethnic Turks. And for a while, in order to try to hold the empire together in the late 19th or 20th centuries, particularly the uh, late 19th, the Ottomans were pushing something called Ottomanism, where, you know, you sort of, whether you were, um, Christian or, or Muslim, or whether you were Arab or Kurdish or Turkish or Bulgarian or whatever you were, you would, you know, you would, they, they tried to sort of gin up this, this loyalty to the Ottoman state. Uh, it didn't work very well. And one thing that came out of that sort of reaction to that was the Turks in the Ottoman Empire, who made up probably by the time, by the early 20th century, probably a good 80% of the empire. So no, we're the, we're tired of the Arabs. We're tired of, 
all these others. You know, we're always fighting wars against these Arabs. They're a pain in our keister. Um, let's just have a state for the Turks. And that's, yeah, and you're exactly right. So the, the creation of the Turkish Republic came out of that. And one of the driving factors was, as you point out correctly, a very strong sort of Turkish nationalism. And, and that's I, I, it's interesting you bring that up. I'm glad you did bring that up because it's sort of segueing or meshing that back in with what I was saying. What Erdogan seems to be saying, in a sense, is you tend you would look at Erdogan and tend to think that he's you know uber nationalist, but based on some of his pronouncements, it's almost like he's 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 pan Islamic uh, in, in a sense. He's he's trying to pull in support from non Turks in the Islamic world. Um, so so you know it's kind of interesting. He's kind of trying to play you know. Uh, I guess both sides defense against each other here, and and, um, and of course again the problem is of course that Turkey has historically been, uh, along with well, you know we used to have an ally called Iran, but they had a little dust up back in '79, and <laughs> now and they all grew beards, and now they don't like us. Um, but our other major allies, of course, Israel, uh, Saudi Arabia, whom we have become much closer to in recent years, uh, particularly under President Trump. Uh, who has sort of reversed the uh, the Obama administration's attempt to cozy up to Iran, and then Turkey. Turkey has historically been, you know, our ally going back to the end of World War II, and of course its entry into NATO. But then you got to ask, I mean, how how legitimate is it to have a, a a member state in NATO that you know basically acts like Erdogan does on some levels? It's it's it's, it's a problematic issue. Well, the uh, original idea was because of the Soviet Union, uh, and this, this uh, guarded the southern flank. And of course, the Turks, uh, the Turks traditionally uh, have a have a grievance against the uh, against the Russians. Right, right, right. Yeah, that goes back many hundreds of years. They, they, the Ottomans and the Turks, and excuse me, the Ottomans and the Russians fought over um, well the Caucasus region, and of course Crimea. There was the, there was a war in there called the Crimean War. Uh, that whole charge of the light brigade thing, you know, comes from that. But with the collapse of the Soviet Union, you have to ask, what is the uh, what is the purpose now? Right, right. You mean what is Turkey's purpose? Yeah. Again, it's like clearly the Turks have never have not asked to be you know let out of NATO or released from NATO. Uh, I think partly, of course, is because he realizes that it's a good place to be for them, um, and partly because again, he, at any given time. Only about half of the population of Turkey seems to be on his side. I mean, enough for him to win elections. Uh, uh, about half the population thinks he's, uh, you know, I, I have a I have a former student of mine who was, she's uh, half Iranian and half Turkish, and she moved back to Istanbul some years ago, and I keep up with her sometimes, and she tells me that uh, she's a staunch secularist, and she's like Erdogan is a what she calls him an imam, an imam or an ayatollah who shaves. You know, that's basically what she calls him. Uh, I think that's a little overblown, but I could see where if you're a staunch Turkish secularist, you would think that. So, but, but again, it's, uh, to get back Hagia Sophia, you know, it, it was, it was, as you pointed out, the primary church of the, uh, uh, of the Eastern Church, of the Orthodox Church under the Byzantine Eastern Roman Empire from its building in the sixth century until the Turks took it, you know, 900 or some years later. Of course, it was turned into a functioning mosque. Uh, it was not. It was. It was then uh, turned into a museum under Ataturk in about 1935, and so now it's going back. I mean, um, 
I mean, in many ways, it's just, it is significant, Kip, but in many ways, it's really significant more as a symbol. Because, again, um, the Turks have had it since 1453. Uh, you know, as I wrote in my article, I had an article on this point, on this topic last week in the stream. Uh, and I said, what surprised me about this was not that Erdogan did it. It's that it's taken him so long to do it. I'm, I mean, I'm surprised he didn't do it like his first or second year in office. Uh, and, 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 and really, where I find, where I, what I find more problematic, maybe not more problematic, but what I find as problematic, is the sort of lukewarm, milquetoast response of most people in the West. I mean, uh, the, the Pope said something vaguely, you know, critical about it. I've heard nothing from President Trump. Our State Department mustered up some, you know, again, milk toast, which actually using milk toast in State Department is redundant, isn't it? Um, it, it was just ridiculous. I mean, you, you, nothing, I, don't, I didn't see any statements from any, any, any leaders in Europe. Uh, the, the most forceful statement I saw was from the Orthodox Patriarch of Moscow. I mean, even Putin, as I point out in the article, even Putin seemed to have downplayed it. Um, so, it, you know, it's, 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 it's problematic. I, it's probably unrealistic to think that the Turks would let it go back to being a functioning church. Of course, they're not going to do that, but one might hope they would have left it as a, you know, a, as a museum and not turn it into a full-blown mosque, but here we are. Well, I, one of the sites I follow regularly is the Middle East Research Institute. Uh-huh. And they have some very interesting takes on, uh, what the what the Arab world and the Muslim world is saying about it, uh, and some of the stuff is pretty frightening. Yeah, uh, I hadn't looked at that. Give me some examples. Well, the idea being that uh, it should be the fact that they have conquered this uh, this church, and wherever they go, they have the right to take over whatever it is. Even if they're later kicked out, they still have the right to go back in, like uh, in Spain. Yeah. Yeah, I know. That's right, because Muslims ruled Spain for 700 years or something, or at least part of Spain. Uh, and anything that they built as a mosque, um, they need to, uh, they need, it needs to, it, you know, it should automatically revert back to being a mosque. Yeah, I know this is ridiculous. This is, a, this is sort of a, um, what I call the sort of variation of the of the Brezhnev doctrine. If you remember the Brezhnev doctrine from the Cold War, who was the Soviet uh, the Soviet premier for a while, 70s and 80s, and he was a guy under whom the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in 79. And his his so-called doctrine was that once a once a uh, country has had a so has a, had a, a communist revolution, uh, we will send troops in to make sure that it never has a counter revolution. So <laughs> once you go communist, you can never go back to being anything else. I mean, it's kind of interesting. Uh, so it's it's similar to that. Yeah, I mean, here's this idea by some of these clerics in the Islamic world that places, as you said in Spain, places that might have been Muslim, you know, in in 1100 AD or 1000 AD, uh, they 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 are because Muslims were once there, and uh, you know, marked their territory, if you will. Then that is forever and ever, Amen. Uh, Muslim territory. I mean, it's just absurd. But the, but the thing, of course, that's that's that that is similar to this, and that is so dispiriting, dispiriting, is that you don't really see anyone in the West standing up and refuting that, and just calling it for what it is. I mean, it would be nice to have the State Department do that. It would be nice to have had President Trump, who on, on many levels has been 
you know, despite his own personal peccadilloes, shall we say, has been more pro-Christian than any president we've had in some time. I mean, it would be nice to have had him say something publicly and, and, and sort of rebuke the Turks for doing this. But I didn't see any statements from him. And as I pointed out in the article, I think probably this has to do with the fact that the U.S. is trying to mend fences with Turkey because Turkey is a very important country and NATO member and all that sort of thing. Um, and I think probably with what Turkey's doing in Libya, interestingly enough, we're probably on the same sheet, believe it or not. But, but yeah, again, the, you have a low you have a, a low expectation level for politicians, right? Um, but what about religious leaders? I mean, I, I guess I think I guess Protestant leaders think that you know this has nothing to do with them because this is Orthodox, some old, old Orthodox basilica. Uh, the Catholics sort of, yeah, maybe a little bit, but you know, the, the, the Catholic Church in the modern world, particularly under Pope Francis, is, is, you know, probably too busy contemplating conversion to Islam to actually see anything critical. Um, so it's like the Western world, Catholic, Protestant world in general, doesn't seem to care a whole lot about this. And the Orthodox world, um, they don't really have much power except in Russia. And I, I, I don't know, who knows what Putin's doing. Well, Dr. Furnish, we're coming to the end of the program. Uh, any final thoughts you'd like to share with the audience? No, I'd just say, you know, pray about this sort of thing. I mean, pray, pray that our leaders, I, again, President Trump, I think, has been pretty good about standing up for Christians. He's probably said more about the persecutions of Christians worldwide than, than probably any of his predecessors. And uh, again, look, I... I support President Trump politically. I'm sure he's not a stellar Christian, and is you know, <laughs> I, I have no illusions about that. But as I think I've said on your show before, Kip, um, one thing I've learned from history is that uh, God can use people that aren't particularly good <laughs> to good ends. We see that a lot in history, and and uh, I, I would just say pray that maybe uh, our leaders would actually say something about this because I think this is just this will be seen in the Islamic world. It's just yet another example of, you know, the West can't stand up, or the Christian world, I guess you could say, can't stand up for itself. Food for thought indeed, Dr. Furnish. Thank you very much for being on the program. Thank you, Kip. World Lutheran News Digest may be heard every Wednesday at 2.30 p.m. and again at 9.30 a.m. Saturday Central Time on Worldwide KFUO. It may also be heard anytime streaming online at kfuo.org. Join us again next Wednesday for another new edition of World Lutheran News Digest. I'm your host, Kip Allen. World Lutheran News Digest is a broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. WLN Digest is produced through the facilities of Worldwide KFUO. You can also listen to WLN Digest on demand at kfuo.org. To correspond with World Lutheran News Digest, email news at kfuo.org.